Well, welcome to episode 102, wherever you are locked down or whether you're running in the green fields of freedom somewhere across the country. It's uh, Hugh Remington here. I'm the hack with the professor, as always, Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Pete? Good, Hugh. How are you coping through lockdown? Yeah, not too bad. We're kind of, we are locked down and uh, the kids doing the homeschooling stuff. And But I think we've kind of got the groove on it as far as you possibly can with these things. So it seems less a... Um, you know, less a weirdness and more just the way things are. Mm. Um, but I think what really has changed since we last spoke is we have kind of stopped pretending that we're going to proceed on into the future with a zero case world, which is what I think we kind of thought was where we were going to be uh, up until the Sydney outbreak. Mm. And I think the Sydney outbreak is the thing that has changed everything really, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Although I do still wonder how some of the outlying state premiers and legislatures and citizens, by extension, are going to feel about that as the rubber starts to hit the road on case numbers spiking once we are fully vaccinated. Now, obviously, that's a long way off. We'll talk about what those percentages are, but ultimately, it's 80% plus to be able to crack things open. Now, I know that National Cabinet, these premiers, seem to have given loose agreement to what the Prime Minister has then articulated, but I, I have my doubts that when we really get to the pointy end of this, that the premiers themselves, particularly someone like Mark McGowan, but also out of Tasmania, possibly even South Australia, those are the three that really make me wonder whether or not once we see a surge in case numbers in a fully vaccinated country, which will, as the Prime Minister has said, come with deaths and hospitalizations. We just hope that it becomes flu-level hospitalizations and deaths as a percentage of those who catch it. But of course, Hugh, a lot more people will catch COVID than catch the flu each flu season. So by definition, whilst the percentage of whom gets severely sick and passes away from COVID may well, at a fully vaccinated rate, become similar to the flu, the numbers, the raw numbers will be larger because it is ripping more through the community, particularly the Delta strain. And I worry that state premiers, particularly let's single out McGowan, but the three that I mentioned, and possibly even Queensland, but certainly McGowan in WA, I worry whether he will then stick to this idea that, well, that is what we have to learn to live with. That is what the experts tell us. I could easily imagine with not insignificant support from the population in WA, having spent plenty of time there, that keeping that border shut for an, an increased indefinite period of time could be on the table. And where does that leave us as a fractured federation? Where does it leave WA, frankly, in the long term? Because at some point, the Band-Aid has to get ripped off, doesn't it? Well, I think you point to it. We are a federation. So, um, you know, the eastern states can take their view and say, well, this is where the population is. But South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania certainly count in the mix. And it's hard to imagine a guy like McGowan or, or Steve Marshall in, in Adelaide who built such popularity as they've got. And in McGowan's case, it is stratospheric on the basis that I've got this under control and I'll keep it out and I'll keep it safe and I'll keep an environment where West Australians can go about their daily lives pretty much unfettered by this pandemic. You know, how can he ease that back and say, well, everything I said before, for the good of the Federation, I'm going to, you know, sell down the river. I just, you know, it'll be a long time to get him to that point. So uh, I think we've we've still got some way to go as a nation to accept the notion that this is going to become endemic in the community and that that's what we're accept. Mm. And it's interesting because I, I wrote about this months ago now uh, 
in in the Oz, and you know, there's no, no great credit to that because it followed a briefing that was done by the Prime Minister of Political Editors uh, and Senior political correspondence in Canberra about where all of this was likely to go. Uh, and it was before, well before the consciousness of the nation was sort of where it is now, because he was making the point. He was saying, look, how are you all going to report on this and how are your editors and your news directors going to feel when this inevitable surge in case numbers come once vaccination rates get to where they need to, when we open up international borders and notwithstanding the best of intentions around quarantine and all the rest of it, COVID will work its way through the community. And this is before we fully appreciated just how contagious the Delta strain was in particular. And it was really interesting. It was a a wake-up moment for a lot of us uh, who heard what he had to say because it was this realisation that, no matter how well we've managed the pandemic, whether you give credit to the state premiers or to the prime minister or a bit of a mixture, no matter how badly we've handled hotel quarantine or vaccinations, at some point when all of that comes out in the wash, the whole world is going to find itself in the same boat, which is that you can't stay isolated forever and you have to become accepting of certain numbers of deaths and hospitalizations, etc. And the problem that a country like Australia has, I think we've spoken about this before, Hugh, because we've done so well managing serious illness and death from COVID, particularly in 2020, but also this year, that makes it harder for us culturally as a nation to accept that idea that COVID rips through the community because we haven't really faced that. Even where we've locked down, like in Sydney at the moment, uh, or in the much worse outbreaks that occurred last year in Victoria over its 112-odd-day lockdown, the number of deaths and the number of serious illnesses is microscopic in comparison to what has happened right around the world in places like the UK, most of Europe, of course, the United States, and that's before you even get to the underdeveloped world. That's in large part because of the lockdowns, of course. But if we look at flu, much has been said about flu from the Prime Minister and others. Pre-pandemic, no one actually paid attention to the flu and deaths from the flu. You might occasionally hear there's been a bad flu season we're at the moment, Mm. you know, et cetera, get vaccinated this year, et cetera. But people didn't think about mortality rates with the flu uh, any more than they did about, you know, heart attacks. People have got to die of something. And so there's a sense that, yes, flu carries off what we presume were to be the frail elderly and not many other people. And maybe it was no worse a way to go than any other way to go. And so flu, uh, you know, we, we weren't all gripped as a nation over the daily flu numbers. So I think while there's truth in saying we've got to get to where we were thinking about the flu, the reality is, is that for some time into the future, and it could be years, uh, we are going to have the COVID numbers whether it's Delta strain, future strains or else, the death toll, et cetera, will be newsworthy. It'll be in the news. The case numbers will be in news. We'll we'll sort of watch it go up and down because restrictions are still part of the program going off into the future. So we'll be much more alive to the detail of deaths from COVID into the future. And that makes it difficult uh, for us to really accept, at least I think for a little while, uh, that it's just another flu. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, and, you know, the, you, you make a good point, right? I mean, we, we we didn't ever have much of a focus on the issue of, of death rates from flu seasons, even particularly bad flu seasons. It, it was just a, sort of a, an accepted reality uh, because we didn't have a, a fully 
fledged vaccine that could prevent you getting it or prevent you getting seriously ill from it. Uh, and we never really had and have had to think about as much the need for people to be vaccinated to the flu, even though I suspect you did it. I, I do it as well. I tell you what, though, have you ever had the flu? Like the the like known that you had the flu as opposed to bad cold know, had a very bad cold. <laughs> yeah, I think I've I've had the flu a few times. It does wipe you out. I, t- I make the point of getting the jab in in you know in yeah. recent years or so. So it's it's not a pleasant not a pleasant. Bike. No, well the re- the reason I the reason I ask is I've only had the flu once, and it came off the back of a period of time where I don't think I was getting the flu jab, not because I was an anti vaxxer but just because I just sort of didn't really think about it. I was young enough. I thought that the flu was not an issue. I'd get a cold every now and again. I probably walked around telling people I had the flu, not actually realizing that I certainly did not. And then I therefore opened up my risk profile, I suppose, if I wasn't getting the vaccine. And all of a sudden, one year, and this is a few years back now, it, it's when I was at Sky News. So it's not too many years ago. Uh, I was, you know, I must have been in my second half 30s. I got the flu and oh my God, it was horrible. And in that period where I had it with massive temperatures, sweats, the whole box and dice, I came to understand that the flu is very different to a cold. uh, And I have been getting vaccinated ever since um, because it was so brutal. And, And I think this raises another thing, which is, if you don't mind me just stepping into this, one of the things when we talk about the vaccines that are available for COVID, you know, AstraZeneca, Moderna, of course, Pfizer, which we're trying to get more and more of each week. Uh, we, we talk about the different brands and the different ways that they're constituted. Now, obviously, uh, the mRNA um, modern technology of some of these vaccines is new, but there have long been different brands and variables around the flu vaccine that would come out each flu season. I don't recall too many people sitting there as though they're going through a drive through McDonald's when they go to their GP to get the flu vaccine saying, now just hold up a second doc, if you don't mind, what particular brand are we working with here? Uh, I, you know, I want to do a bit of my own Google doctor research on this to work out whether there's a higher rate of this or that uh, in terms of potential risks and repercussions attached to that particular flu jab. Isn't it interesting how that has become a way of thinking um, which is because, which has no doubt caused vaccine hesitancy when it comes to the jabs that come in to deal with coronavirus. Were it analogous to the flu, we'd all just be saying, guess what? We've got X million numbers of COVID jabs that have turned up. You just go to your GP or your mass vaccine hub, you show your Medicare card or whatever it might be, you have your risk profile and then you just get the jab. End of discussion. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's actually as a comparative point, I think it – serves a little bit to highlight uh, that the hesitancy coming from the COVID vaccine is obviously because it is so new uh, and it has been rushed through the TGA process, which is not to suggest that it doesn't deserve its profile. I'm not being, Mm. (laughs) I'm not trying to add to hesitancy, but I think that newness of it has probably prompted uh, greater scepticism, unfortunately, in a way that has done damage to the whole program. Yeah, we've gone from patients to being consumers, essentially, with yeah. the, our consumer rights. It's a it's an excellent point, and I, I think what has also changed is that you know relatively 
recently has been the development whereby we have access to all kinds of alternative sources of information through social media. So suddenly, you know, whereas, you know, that asymmetry of information and knowledge that you have when you go to your doctor, we think has been changed by the fact that we can now go and look at uh, whatever Craig Kelly is barking out into the ether or, or a whole bunch of other people and think that we're better informed than the doctors or think, you know, and then conspiracy theories come out of that. But on the subject of vaccination, it is clear that vaccinations are now everything about how we're going to manage this as a public health issue. It's been clear for some time, but the prime minister, importantly, is now embracing that. So, you know, he was going through that. It's about lockdowns. You know, we need to get lockdowns. This is a mixed messaging about, you know, we, we've got to live freely. Uh, we shouldn't lock down if you're in Victoria. Oh, but it's it's New South Wales doing it. So lockdowns are important. Now it is about vaccinations. And while that is true to the future, we've heard from the Doherty Institute, it also points the arrow back to the guy who is most in charge of that key element, the vaccinations, the prime minister. So even as he grips up on this and says, here is the road forward, it is about vaccinations, he gets points for now having a plan he can articulate. Does he get a net benefit, though, because it drives people back to the subject of vaccinations, which is exactly where Scott Morrison and the federal government basically stuffed it up? Yeah, well, they look, he's become a little bit more contrite about some of these errors along the way, including where you started there with, you know, him praising Gladys Berejiklian for not locking down quickly. Now he's arguing that, you know, that well, he's acknowledging essentially that that was wrong, but he's trying, it's always, he always tries to justify his error in hindsight by saying that, well, we weren't fully au fait with just how contagious the Delta strain was. I beg to differ. Uh, we'd seen just how contagious it was overseas. The evidence might have mounted since then about just how contagious it is, but particularly in India, but also elsewhere, there was ample evidence already that Delta was a different variation that therefore required a harder and a faster lockdown. So I think that it's nice to see that he acknowledges that he missed on that one, but the excuse that we weren't yet fully au fait with just how contagious Delta was, I think is a misnomer uh, and a falsity, frankly. It's a straw man argument by him. But the other half of it, the vaccines, he started to acknowledge and take responsibility for some of the slowness of the rollout. Again, with caveats uh, that, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I think he's only really started to take responsibility for the vaccine rollout bungling because that's what it has been, uh, because he can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, he's sort of stepped in now that he knows he's got those regular million-dose weekly arrivals from Pfizer, that you've got the change to target advice, which we can no doubt talk about as well when it comes to who can get AstraZeneca. I think he's jumped into that space partly because he had no choice, because there was a vacuum of responsibility and it was going to land at his feet inevitably, as national leader, prime minister, but also because I think he can now look at this. He's looking at it through a timetable. He would reject this, of course, but he's looking at it through a political timetable. He knows that the latest he can go to the polls is May. He's more likely to try to get there in March. He's given up on going to the polls this year, even though that was probably an intent at one point in time, particularly when you look at the parliamentary calendar, but that is gone. But with that timeline in mind... He's looking at March at the earliest, maybe February, thinking, okay, an election called roughly four weeks before that, where are vaccination rates? Where are we likely at when it comes to being able to potentially open up international borders and give people enough warning to get further vaccinated? And importantly, where are we at with access to vaccines? 
so that we can say to the Australian population, the only reason you're not vaccinated now is your choice. So here is where we go next. He's only really been willing to step up to the plate of responsibility once he knows that X number of months from now, when he will be ultimately judged at an election, he can say to the Australian people, whatever mistakes we've made, added to our 2020 performance of keeping down deaths and COVID contagion, look at where we are at now with the vaccine rollout. I intervened and off we go. I think that's his political strategy. Uh, It'll be interesting to see whether voters buy that because by the time we get there, they're just glad that we're in a good space or if they remember back to the here and now, and particularly the last few weeks, and that frustration has set in stone or cement uh, an anger with Scott Morrison such that they're prepared to change governments. Or alternatively, they're looking at a rising death toll by that stage and they're starting to think maybe Mark McGowan's right and Scott Morrison's wrong. (laughs) We'll take a quick break. Uh, We'll talk a bit more about election strategies uh, from the Labor side as well, but uh, that's just after this break. Welcome back. Episode 102 of The Professor and the Hack. Um, PVO, of course, Peter Van Onselen is the professor. Uh, Peter, timing is everything with elections, as you've said. Mm. He might have looked at one at the end of uh, this year, thinking that was okay. Now that's been pushed over into next year, as he's perfectly entitled to do. Uh, what's your sense about the um, the way in which he sees the business about vaccination rates and the potential danger of a rising death toll as the economy opens up again? I think he's really trying to thread the needle on election timing versus those unavoidable consequences, which is where we started this discussion about what happens when you do open up and COVID rips through and you have inevitably much higher rates of COVID contagion as well as deaths, even if they're flu level because of the sheer volume of people who get COVID. He's trying to thread that needle cue, I think, so that he can call the election and have the timing of polling day just after he can claim that we're opening up or we're about to open up and vaccination rates are are at a point where there's a level of safety for everyone. But just before the phase and the process of opening up leads to that inevitable uptick in cases and deaths which we're trying to ready everyone for, you know, all of us commentators, politicians, everyone's trying to ready the population for that. I think he wants to try to thread that needle. And it's, I tell you what, it's delicate because get it right. And he sort of walks out with a sudden surge potentially in support, get it wrong. And this becomes one of those elections where there's a move on a government seeking a fourth term actually gets bundled out relatively convincingly. Uh, But that is the, political prism through which I think he looks at this. What does Labor do with that? Well, Labor, uh, all, like it's already put its eggs in one basket, really. It's it's trying to make the next election the equivalent of saying he had two jobs, hotel quarantine and vaccine rollout, and he bungled them both. They're trying to do a version of Tony Abbott. You know, Her job was to not introduce a carbon tax and to stop the boats. And she failed at both. She promised the carbon tax, Julie Gillard, that is, didn't get there. She, you know, they, they were supposed to stop the boats, didn't happen right across her and Rudd's terms. I think Labor's trying to do its own version of that, where it cements attitudes on those fronts. But hand in glove with that, which I suspect is where you're going with this, they need to have some sort of version of an alternative that they can point to if vaccination rates 
um, do get there, but perhaps haven't got there quickly enough, and we're not quite open you, yet. You can't just be negative about the past. It worked for Tony Abbott, but I don't think that's Anthony Albanese. You can't just be negative about the past and think that'll get you across to election victory. No, and I think the two things that Labor's doing on that front, one is they're trying to say, here's how we can ramp up vaccine rollouts with this $300 plan that they just announced this return week to parliament after the winter recess. We can talk about that. The other one uh, is that I think that they will then have policy scripts that they see as post-pandemic economy builders uh, or social contract builders. And it's in that context that they've split uh, elements of the Treasury shadow portfolio into this super portfolio that their deputy leader, Richard Miles, holds about COVID recovery. So they don't want it to just become a straight up economic debate, which traditionally Labor loses, um, whether you think that's fair or not. Um, they, they would like it to make about a debate about what type of society post-COVID, as we go through the tumult ahead, do we want Australia to look like as we come out the other side? And that's where they can perhaps try to make this more of a Labor values election in some respects to add the positive messaging to their negative messaging. Will we be going to an election off the back of a recession? It's a good question. I'm I'm less a believer that we will go into a recession. I can imagine that we'll have one quarter of uh, economically going backwards. I'm not sure that we'll have the the two quarters to make it fit as a technical recession. I mean, we only barely went into recession. We went hard into recession, but then came hard out of it. We only barely went into recession last year. And even though these lockdowns are potentially even longer uh, than, than what the country faced last year when we did have that recession, we've learned to live with COVID in a way that perhaps makes it less likely that that happens. And the government, of course, will go hell for leather to avoid a recession. And that, that's something people forget. Last year, had the government spent that little bit earlier, um, particularly around bushfires, by the way, not just around COVID, it would have avoided two economic quarters, two negative economic quarters. It's very hard to actually fail to the point of having two economic quarters, even in the in the heights of the 2020 pandemic, had they been quicker to spend without that liberal instinct not to, and had they done that around bushfires rather than just around COVID, they would have just gotten out of adult, uh, the, the the two quarters of economic growth to create the technical recession. So it would surprise me uh, if it was a recession, but it's certainly not out, out of the realms of possibility, we should say, because it will a lot of it will depend on how hard and how long the current outbreaks go. And Sydney being locked down uh, is a real variable to when Melbourne was locked down last year. I mean, and this is something that, you know, is getting increased attention now. That west and southwest of Sydney, if you lock it down as hard as they're trying to lock it down, uh, boy, I think people are going to increasingly come to understand just how important to the engine room of the national economy that large body of um, workers, many of whom um, are you know frontline workers, many of whom uh, are working in key industries to keep the economy chugging along. There's going to be a real realization that it's not just the upper echelons of society, uh, in a wealth sense, uh, who tick the economy along. It's the workers, the worker bees, if you will, uh, who make sure that those captains of industry are seen as being captains of industry. It's a large part the migrant working class, I guess, is yep. is what it is in the in the modern sense. Um, Qantas has announced more stand downs. Qantas, as Alan Joyce will say, is the you know in the industry that was worst hit uh, by the pandemic, plainly travel 
restrictions <laughs> are going to hit those who uh, travel people around. Uh, he is quite clear, Alan Joyce, that um, uh, that he believes that it'll be at least two months before uh, border restrictions are lifted around Sydney. So that's another month on top of, uh, you know, the most optimistic deadline being put by Gladys Berejiklian. And he's a guy who talks up flights. Uh, he still believes that there is an outside chance. He's still sort of pinning his hopes on there being some international travel back by Christmas, but he admits that's more in, in hope than an expectation. So um, it, at some stage, uh, that will lift up. But looking at what Qantas has done and laying off more staff, well, not laying off, standing down another 2,500 staff is a reminder that we're some way away even with vaccinations, before we start to imagine that we've got back anything like the, the life we used to have. Yeah, I think that's right. It's also an indicator as well. I think that businesses you know, like Qantas that are at the absolute vanguard have been adversely affected by lockdowns and by COVID. Uh, they're no longer interested in keeping costs up in conjunction with the hope uh, of you know lockdowns and the impact of COVID been on the lower side rather than the higher side within the bandwidth of possibilities. So, you know, they are now planning for the worst and hoping for the best. Uh, and they, they do that because it just allows them to keep their costs at a minimum until things actually do open up and then they can hastily try to, you know, get ready earlier. So, for example, if they're planning for a, a two-month shutdown, but the government is saying, no, 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 it'll only be a month. Well, firstly, we know that even if it is only a month, it then takes a bit of time out the other side of it for all the restrictions to thoroughly ease as opposed to suddenly ease. But secondly, you know, if they're planning as a business for it to happen in one month and it doesn't, the costs attached to gearing up and being ready for that are astronomical, frankly. Whereas if they delay it by the two months, they can shut things down, they can keep costs down. And then if it does by some miracle open after one month, they can then ramp it up and not take four weeks to get back, but potentially only take two uh, or one for some services. So that would be the, I think it's just purely, if you like, the bean counters uh, and the uh, and the business strategists trying to say, here's what's best for our business to cope through what we think is likely. Uh, a politician, on the other hand, wants to try to keep hope up to some extent, even though you don't want to keep over-promising and under-delivering. To some extent, you need to keep hope up anyway as a politician just so that people um, don't fall back on their worst instincts um, in, in, in terms of how they cope with lockdowns. We're almost out of time, but just on another point, anyone with a superannuation account that they go and check in on will be aware that the last year has seen uh, many super accounts, including the giant ones, Australian super and so on, uh, returning over 20% in the last year. We've seen housing prices in a number of major markets, Sydney, Canberra, um, elsewhere over 20%, even in Melbourne, uh, housing prices up into high double digits for the year unsustainable, um, what policies might we look to or do we leave it to the market as we head into an election that in any way tries to manage this because it either continues to go up or we look at a as damaging hard landing at some point. Uh, is this activating in your mind uh, any of the imaginations, the policy imaginations on either side of politics? I don't see either side of politics um, moving into an imaginative uh, or even a remotely 
uh, I guess what you might call innovative approach to policy for the next election. Uh, Labor, because it was burnt by 2019 with going in with a big target and uh, the government, Scott Morrison's government, because I don't know that it it has any imagination, frankly, um, for that sort of policy development, uh, but certainly not trying to win a fourth term, let's put it that way. Uh, You you give me an opportunity to plug my latest book with Wayne Errington, Hugh, who dares lose? <laughs> who dares lose? Who dares loses? Great title. Who dares loses? Pariah policies. And I tell you what, we it's look. It's a it's a small book. Um, Monash University Press put it out, uh, and it's it's a bit like a quarterly essay would be the way to describe it in terms of length. And it um, we go through different policy ideas that frankly are pariah policies uh, that are never going to happen in this country for reasons that we enunciate in the book around the political system. But they're policy ideas that have either been embraced or are starting to be embraced or have long been embraced in other parts of the world and for some reason seemingly in a non-controversial way, yet here we can't go there. So I'm talking about things like death duties, uh, the rise now of the universal basic income as an option, a better way to structure taxing the family home. We then also have a different way of looking at public interest journalism in the wake of the challenges to the commercial model. We have a look at uh, a new way or a different way of doing uh, business when it comes to climate change policy as well. But the point is, the overarching point of the book is to say, here are some interesting ideas that if you had a rational debate, you would be able to then have on the table and they would be for the betterment, quite frankly, of the country, whether you ultimately support these policies or not, as long as you have the rational debate. But the book makes the lament that uh, we're not likely to go there anytime soon. And we that 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 is the thing I don't want to give away. That is the kind of political science take out of the book as we try to explain what is wrong with our system. It's the same thing that makes our system very right in other ways, by the way. But in terms of policy ingenuity, it's the thing that makes us very incapable of being an innovative nation, which is in such stark contrast, just to wrap, to what we were at the point of federation, you know, things like compulsory voting, things like preferential voting that came in very soon after federation in those early decades, we were a country that was trialing a new way of doing things for our own betterment. But now we're sort of stuck, bogged in our conservatism and unwillingness to be innovative. And post-COVID is going to be an era where innovation is needed, yet I don't think that we have the cultural nor political capital for it, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I've said uh, before that uh, I don't think that the midpoint in Australian society is conservative with a capital C in front of it so much as cautious with a capital C in front of it. Mm. And I think it goes to that. I shall add that to my reading list, uh, PVO. I'm currently reading on the advice of my 92-year-old father, God bless him, who is uh, active in mind and and body, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, which is a sort of a Bible on climate change. Right. And uh, I can tell you that as I read that with every passing page, I'm thinking... Maybe I've underestimated uh, how much we need to work in those policy areas as well. I am writing that down uh, as we speak. The uninhabitable earth. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It starts with, it is worse, much worse than you think, uh, and pretty much goes downhill from there. But the science is all pretty solid. I I recommend it. But uh, it's not a cheerful read, but it may be a call to action. Uh, PVO, great to talk to you as always. Stay well. Get those jabs when you can. And uh, we'll talk soon. Likewise, Hugh. Thanks. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.